so what I'd say then as we, as we approach this week is that um, I think we can confidently um, be able to get through Revelation 8 and 9. I was hoping to get all the way through 12 this week. So I think we can confidently get through 8 and 9. I think we can get close through 10 and then maybe speculatively through 11 and 12. So we'll, we'll see how, how some of the Old Testament reading and stuff goes. But that's kind of what I'm, st- I'm still hoping to accomplish that this week. I just don't know. We might get kind of stopped up on where some of our Old Testament intersections are um, and maybe where some of your questions come from. So just a heads up, that's kind of where we're heading for this week. Um, we came out of Revelation chapter 7, and so we just finished, or, or, or almost finished, with uh, the seven seals. Um, and, and one of the things I said was was that there's an interlude between the sixth and seventh of every judgment. Um, and of the seals, that's when we moved into chapter 7, which had like the 144,000 and stuff like that in it. And so... I can't remember if we actually came to this or, or whether it was just something we were supposed to be thinking about, but like, can anybody tell me what the interlude kind of showed us the purpose of the seal judgments was? How, could you rephrase your question? Yeah, so, so if I said that the interlude between the sixth and seventh of any of the judgments um, tends to tell us kind of maybe how we should be looking at the judgments or what is the purpose of this particular capitulation or telling of this version of the story. Um, if chapter 7 is kind of our interlude, which is the sealing of the 144,000 and, uh, and what follows, what was the purpose of this particular look at, uh, at the judgments? Well, I don't think there, maybe the silence or the in-between causes you to look at the seventh as being more important or being more in-depth. I, I think they're all one motion, right? Yeah. So you just maybe, this, on the seventh, you're kind of looking at it like it's just a little more important than others. It has more emphasis. It's a little more protracted in its reading, but I don't think it's any time a difference. I think it's, okay. It's a full thing. So it's just maybe it's like the silence says, hey, this is important stuff. This is time to worship and get ready. This is some hard stuff. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that I actually do think coming into, out of chapter 7, moving into chapter 8, there is like a specific time where it is silence. And I think that actually ties back to something we, we talked about um, that's very important in, uh, in the seals' judgments. What, what's interesting, and, and maybe this will help kind of direct what I was getting at, is if we said... Um, I think the big catalyst moving into chapter 7 was the last part of chapter 6, which said that all these kind of judgments and stuff had taken place. It says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And I think chapter 7 is kind of looking at this and, and reassuring our churches in Asia Minor, our people of God. So if they're asking the question, who can stand? And it is God's people that ultimately can stand. That's our definition of the ceiling of the 144,000. That is, God's people are able to stand. And then we move into this vision of heaven and there are the angels are standing. And so we, we kind of get this full vision of those who belong to God can stand even in the face of this reaction from God. Um, and then that, that kind of reinforces how we to understand all the judgments that preceded it. And I would agree that I don't think it's a chronological thing. It's, it's more of a revealing of a truth through time. This is how God sees um, humanity. These are things that God is capable of. These are things that are under God's control. Um, but through all those things, God, like it's the people of God that can stand. And so that kind of pulls us in, um, moving into chapter 8. So we only got through the sixth seal, and then that interlude, and the seventh seal has not yet occurred. Um, And so as we move into chapter 8, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So there's, there's that silence there, which I think is, is pretty interesting. You kind of have this, this vision in, in the seals where um, these, these guys who are surrounded on the throne are just barking orders. They're like, come, come, there's a horse, come, come, there's another horse. Like things are kind of rapid fire coming out. And then all of a sudden you, you have this sealing of God's people and then there's a, a silence in heaven. And part of that silence gives you a vision of it's the prayers of the saints. And I don't think this has to necessarily be the um, only the martyrs under the altar. That kind of we saw earlier where he said more of you have to be. Um, I don't think it has to be restricted to them. It could be just like all, basically all the saints. And it's kind of interesting to think that it's the prayers of his people that cause silence in heaven like it's the opening of the seal and then the prayers of God's people are kind of sitting there in this silence and there's there's a few things that could kind of play into this um, image there is a pretty consistent theme through the Old Testament of silence before God's judgment like something big is going to happen God is about to um, reveal himself generally through uh, a judgment of some sort and then there's silence that kind of precedes that so there's a pretty consistent Old Testament um, image of that happening there's also a thought that perhaps this is the time where basically God if you think of this incense flowing up from the altar up to God that he, he's basically taking it in he's, he's hearing he's listening to he's, he's in the incense is, is you're able to kind of sniff it and becomes part of you type of thing and the prayers from his people are then um, coming in and then subsequent to that is kind of where you see this reaction of the fire being hurled down onto earth. It's like if the prayers of the saints were when, when if you think of the altar folks um, when will be, be avenged and God takes all this in and all of a sudden it's then that the fire then comes from the throne of God and then comes down on earth in judgment against those that otherwise um, by which those folks were sacrificed. Isn't there some sort of a connotation that maybe the prayers weren't working? In what way? I mean, well, some of the prayers of the saints are, I mean, they're sending him up. He's hearing them all in the context that I'm going to relieve you of your of your anxiety, or is he saying I'm going to relieve you in your prayers with your blood and your death? I mean... Well, so it depends on, and this comes to a lot of what Jesus, I think, is saying to the churches, is um, it depends what you're praying for. If you're praying for... Um, spiritual protection, if you're praying for um, persistence in the face of evil, God will, is, is agreeing and granting those things. If you're ultimately praying that those who have assailed against God's people um, will be judged and justice will be done, God is guaranteeing all those things. What he is not guaranteeing is your physical protection. And so if um, which then reflects on how we think of um, taking up your cross daily if we did if we did not love our lives so much as unto death if this thought process that says um, we're actually probably praying for the wrong things if we're pr- praying for our physical persistence but those that have been sacrificed for him if you, if you assume that a martyr's death is a right implication that they were otherwise asking for the right things this would seem a right response from God that says yes justice will ultimately done if this is what you're demanding that your blood will be avenged in response to that fire then to send on to the earth in judgment. That would make sense. 
that would make sense. Which is interesting because like um, one of the things I think we'll see, and there is some divergence here. So um, what I said uh, a few classes back was that what I think is happening here is you're seeing some recapitulation. We're going to see in our series of judgments that we keep kind of making our way up, all the way up to almost the end of the world and that kind of backs off in the story then tells again. Um, in the smart people that love Jesus category, you can easily see, and, and, and I understand where this comes from, that it is the seventh seal that then triggers the seven trumpets. And this is a continuation of like a long series of judgments that is otherwise impacting people coming from the hand of God. Um, you can read this symbolically and still see this um, as, a, as a trajectory. I think it's a little, from, at least from my perspective, it's a little too event-oriented because a lot of these things, hey, what's going on, man? Okay. All right, so we were talking about, um, oh, so how, how we, um, ways in which, when we can understand kind of these judgments that show up in Revelation. So we've talked before that these come in, in sections of seven. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and there's also seven thunders, which will show up in a few chapters. Um, and some people will read these as kind of the continuing, continuous um, explanation of an event. Um, physical things that we can expect to happen. As we talked through some of the symbolic nature of these things, it seems like a lot of these are probably explaining truths, things that are true about God, things that are true about people, and things are true uh, about how God sees things. Like we, when John enters into this heavenly realm, he just gets to see things from a different perspective, a perspective that we don't get. And so we kind of can understand these radical images that are going on around us as um, John's attempt to explain something that isn't otherwise human. So as we transition from these trumpets into the... Or uh, excuse me, from the seals into the trumpets, um, I think you can reasonably look at this and say this seems like a continuation of each other, but what I think is actually happening is once we get up to this, this end at the end of chapter, or starting in chapter 8, which describes the seventh seal, and he says, um, he hears these prayers of the saints, and all of a sudden there is lightning that comes down, um, and, or excuse me, fire that comes down, which is generally a judgment thing. Fire shows up in, in the Bible as uh, oftentimes judgment or presence of God. Like if we think about different times where, the, where fire shows up, um, the description of the Holy Spirit coming in, in Acts is described as a, as a wind, whirlwind of fire, right? So presence of God. And God's people, when they're being led at night out of Egypt, they're being led by a pillar of fire. Okay, God's presence is there. Um, but it's also a sign of judgment where he's saying, after I've heard that my people have, have been killed, um, they will be avenged, and my judgment will ultimately come upon the earth for that. And so that's kind of what I think the reaction we're seeing. And I think we're going to bow right back out of this um, Right up, almost snuggling up to the end of the world, and then we're going to kind of start over and relook at something from a different perspective, Re- see reality again as, in a different way as we go through the trumpets. Okay, um, like I said, have said before, it's okay to disagree with me on that. I think it's a reasonable thing not, not to see it that way, but that's what I think is actually happening here. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, like it was signs, it was signs about the trumpets, like people across the world were saying, like they've been hearing trumpets at different times, so it's like. I believe So the interesting thing about trumpets is if we look back through how the um, how God has used this trumpet imagery in the Old Testament, um, it tends to do two things. Um, trumpets tend to be calls to uh, calls to war and calls to worship. Um, and so what I think is actually happening is these aren't likely, at least for me, I don't think they're physical trumpet sounds. I think they're, it's imagery that God is bringing to us to say, um, pay attention. Pay attention and know that these, know that, um, 
there's a different reality that I want you to see differently. But also, when we think about war and worship, those things are actually a lot closer because how we fight, the way that we fight is through prayer, prayer and worship to God. Like we don't, um, even the physical things that are happening in the book of Revelation all happen at the hand of God. Places where you see God's people um, explained and see what they're doing, none of them are actually the agents of physical harm or war. Okay, All those things are, are judgments that are coming from the hand of God. It's our call to say, even in spite of these things that go on our world around us, we react in prayer and worship, and God otherwise handles these things. Basically, we're faithful in the means. It's God's responsibility to kind of handle the ends. And so that's what I think when he's talking about the, the trumpets, I think we see signals of um, calls to war, and it basically will be God's war upon a humanity that's otherwise rejected him. But it'll be interesting to see as we go through this chapter what these are actually for. These aren't just straight judgments for him to say, this is enough. I've, I've had it with you, basically. He's got an interesting call in here. So we'll, let's read through, and I bet we can find him and see what he's actually doing with these judgments that come out of the trumpets. Okay. So... He says, uh, this is in Revelation 8, chapter, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on springs of water. The name of the stars Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Okay, there's a, there's a lot going on in there. So, first thing I want to ask is, there's something... There's something interesting. First, I think all these four are grouped together. I think they're um, just like the first four seals where the, the horses seem to ride together. They seem to be war and kind of the consequences of war. These all seem to be grouped together as well. They're directed at the earth. But there's a few interesting things about them. The first one is, is they have a similarity to previous biblical plagues. Do you guys remember where they're from? Or do you recognize kind of the um, similarities? What other... What, what was that? Exactly. Exactly. Think, think of the similarities that are here to the Exodus plagues. Okay? When, when God was getting his people um, from Pharaoh, we have things uh, on the first uh, trumpet blow. We have the third of the earth, oh, excuse me, hail and fire mixed with blood. Did we not have that? Did we not have hail and fire coming as one of the Exodus plagues? Number two, second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Did Moses not? Remember, he touches the staff and turns the blood into water? Okay. Third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. Uh, this one has less relevance, although um, we do we remember the, um, there's a story with Moses at... Um, uh, Mira or Mira where's, where there's a bitter water and the opposite is what actually happens the water is bitter and then Moses touches it and the water becomes drinkable and here it's actually the opposite of what's actually happening there um, and then the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of their light might be darkened remember darkness was one of the Exodus plagues as well now question what was the point of the Exodus plagues? for God's glory glorify him or power 
Yeah, so, so God is revealed through those plagues. Specifically, if you look at the types of plagues that God sent upon Egypt, um, they had specific connections with Egyptian gods. Exactly right. Like, you could see that the Egyptians' gods acted one way, and God, that's why the frogs are funny. Like, they, you know, they have a, have a god that was this, and God shows, I'm more powerful than this god. I'm more powerful than this god. I'm more powerful than this god. Like, it's a very cool demonstration of God showing who he is. But he also had an interaction with Pharaoh. What was the deal? What, was, what were the purpose of the plagues connected with Pharaoh? Only from his perspective, wearing him down to recognize who he was, come and bring him to his knees. Sorry, interrupt. I wasn't going to say, I was listening. <laughs> yeah, I think he was he was wearing Pharaoh down to bring around some, you know, things that had to happen. Yeah, prophesied the things that had to happen. So, do you do you guys remember what? What's interesting is I think we sometimes lose this in the. Um, in how we talk about the Exodus plagues, do you guys remember what it is that God's people wanted and what Pharaoh kept saying no to? Uh, freedom. So that's what ultimately happens. What ultimately happens is God says, uh, Moses is saying, let my people go. You need to free the people completely. The original question was, we want to leave here for a few days and go out and worship God and then we'll come back. The original re- request for God's people wasn't to leave. It was the, requi- it was the request to worship we want to worship God and we're not being permitted to. And that continues to escalate. Okay? And as it escalates, then God says, that's enough. <laughs> I, my people are freeing. Like, because your heart, is, your heart was hardened, because you refused to repent, um, then ultimately my people will be free. Now that seems to be God's aim anyway um, and had a hand in Pharaoh's lack of repentance. But like, that's ultimately, the plagues are calling Pharaoh to repentance for not allowing God's people to worship God. Um, it's, it's interesting just to think that they didn't. That isn't necessary. They weren't necessarily looking for complete freedom. They were actually willing to be slaves. They just wanted to worship God. And Pharaoh said no to that, and it ultimately cost him all of them. God, God released all of his people. All right. So I think we need to keep that that thought in mind, though, as the Exodus plagues, as a revealing of who God is, His sovereignty over the events that happen in the world, um, and also that they were calls for repentance. Because I think we're going to see that kind of consistently through some of the images that are being used here in the trumpets. But your own translation says it in the blue trumpet. Yeah. But you say that it's not an actual trumpet. Or are you saying it, it is an actual trumpet? I, maybe I didn't hear you correctly. No, no it's, it is a... Um, the, the, the connection is this, is... this is a vision of John, right. but it isn't necessarily our reality. Right? So it's something that John is seeing. All these, all these visions that John is taking in are things that he actually sees or hears. But it doesn't necessarily imply that those are things that we will actually see or hear. They are just ways uh, of which true realities are being revealed to us. Yeah, that's how, that's how I would see that. So it's more like a, a string of events that happen, like, basically, like, instead of, like, hearing trumpets, like, the people be saying they be hearing the horns everywhere. And yeah. Like, like you said, like, it makes sense. Like, uh... How can I put it? Like, the signs that he tried to show you, like, certain things happen that happen in the Bible, but only in modern times to us. Yeah. Like, we got to pay attention to it, so... It's more like a string event, just like he was saying in the Bible. Yeah, I, I think it's more that that as what John is seeing is revealing some realities that then we have to be aware of. We should be aware that that God will have, um, will bring judgment upon His world. He will 
Um, he will use those judgments to call people to repentance, and those are things that we otherwise can keep an eye out for. I don't think that they're necessarily tied to specific events, like that we would ever see something and go, third trumpet. So I don't, I don't think that would ever be the case, because I think, to be honest, most of the things that Revelation is describing are things that are happening in one way or the other in our world and have been forever. Um, God is always calling people to repentance. I think God is always, um, if, if we looked at the seals prior to this, and there's, um, there's these visions of these horses riding um, where war is, is kind of bringing um, pitting people against each other and resulting in the poor getting the poor getting poorer and people you know things getting better for the rich and that kind of thing and like that's always been true but there are things that otherwise God's people can take comfort in because they know God's got everything under control and these are things that ultimately will point back to God and so I think it is one of the, one of the things that we talked about with this particular book is if John is writing. He's Pastor John to a group of seven churches in Revelation. It can't mean something markedly different for us than it means for them. Like, otherwise, John's just kind of being a jerk. If he's saying, hey, I know you're running into all these problems, and I know people are dying in the name of the Lord, and to encourage you, I'm going to tell you about something that's not going to happen for 2,000 years and has nothing to do with you. Like, that doesn't sound right. So, it, so it's, we shouldn't probably read Revelation as meaning something only for our time. It's probably something that would mean something both to the folks in the first century and to us, which means there are things that are probably more universal. But it's difficult, though, because it uses a lot of symbolic language um, that we have to kind of parse through, and most of it ties back to Old Testament stuff. That's what's kind of interesting about where John's coming from. So... All right, so we were looking at, uh, we said, first thing, we have hail and fire, and a, th- a third of the earth was burned up. How does that compare to what we saw in the seals? Do you remember the number that went on in the seals? It was a fourth. I'll give that one. That's a freebie. Next one, I'm, I'm waiting. Um, so one of the things that we see in, in the stories, in the um, recapitulations or the, the recaps, the retelling of this same story over and over again, is that it will escalate. In, in the first, in the seals, it's a quarter of, of things that are being impacted. In the trumpets, it's going to be a third. Once we, we get to the thunders, which he'll, he'll basically skip and say, I'm not going to tell you what's in there. Um, and then we get to the bowls, and the bowls seem to finish everything off. And so one of the things that, that I think we, we need to be careful of is I don't think it's an addition. I don't think he's saying round one impacted a quarter, and now I've impacted a third and then add the two together. I think what, he's, what John is doing here is saying, um, I'm telling you the same story. I'm telling it from a different angle. But I won't, this isn't going to be everything. This is, I'm not done. You'll see this continue to escalate until it does come to fruition. It's not that Revelation doesn't talk about um, kind of an end of everything. It most certainly does. It's just that he's, what he's doing right now is showing like these universal truths that impact how we act today or how the people in the first century act today. Okay? All right. Then we have uh, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, again, from a concept of understanding into the world stuff, you can't just take out a third of the sea. That's not, our, our earth is in pretty sweet balance that the Lord has created. Um, you can't block out a third of the sun and have it not terribly impact the environment around you. You can't chuck mountains and things into the sea. So I think he's being symbolic here. He's not saying literally that we should ever expect something like this to happen. He's using the third as kind of a reference of these things will escalate. I'm continuing to tell a story. So one of the things I want to take here, though, is look back at um, Jeremiah 51, which I think is where some of this great mountain stuff uh, comes from. So let's see see if we can find that. 
Yeah, let's just start in Jeremiah 51. Okay, this is um, this is describing God's judgment against the nation of Babylon. And what you'll see, and this will happen in Revelation too, also, is that Babylon becomes a bit of a stock character, someone that um, John refers to as this was a great nation that, although under the hand of God, was against His people. Okay, God sent the agent, the nation of Babylon, to remove His people from the land that He promised and take them out of it because of their rebellion. Even that was a call to repentance. It was a call to His people to turn and follow Him, and God will will use whatever means he deems necessary to get your attention and call you back to him. So it's things that people would otherwise, from a human perspective, um, seem harsh are, are frankly attempts for God to get your attention and say, if you, if you rebel against me, I will do what it takes for you to, to understand. And what was, what was kind of interesting is once God people are taking into Babylon, once they get out of there, um, I mean, they were, they were heretical. They didn't listen to anything God was saying. They worshipped anything they wanted to. And it's, it's the, a group like the Pharisees that comes out of returning, like they wouldn't touch an idol if it you know came within 300 feet of them because they learned their lesson they said well, this is what we got taken out of here for this we got to tighten up the ship and do what god says now ultimately they went the wrong way with it they ignored god's love and associated but like that's where some of that stuff comes from but babylon will continue to show up it has the bible refers to it as a stock symbol of um kind of the nation that entices god's people um that pulls them out of the things that god's promised and otherwise kind of d- destroys them or sullies their beliefs okay so this is in, in Jeremiah 51. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of lev And I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow, winnow her, and they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble. Let not the archer bend his bow, and let him not stand up in his armor. Spare not her young men. Devote to destruction all her army. They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. So we'll continue reading. But notice the the image here is, is actually pretty similar to what we're reading in, in Revelation, which is these people have done wrong to God's people and God's reminding you, I've not forgotten you. You, will, you. Justice will be done to those that come against you and that have ultimately have come against me. It says, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. And then let's move into um, number two, uh, verse 24. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you should be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. So if we look at the, how, how he's using, um, he's referring to, to Babylon basically as that burnt mountain. Okay, um, We see a similar description of a kingdom as a mountain in Daniel for you guys that, that went through the Daniel class and um, Christ's kingdom is kind of described that same way as a mountain and so it's thought that perhaps back in Revelation 8 where it says the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning which you guys see kind of the connection back there to that 
place in Jeremiah, was thrown into the sea and the third of the sea became blood, um, that this might be in reference to the judgment of a great kingdom. In, in their mind, probably would probably be Rome, but it's kind of this Babylon-type kingdom that um, causes God's people to stumble um, and ultimately poisons what it hits. You know, it's like it's when that hits the water that the water turns to blood and the third of the living creatures in the sea died and the ships are destroyed. And so there's, I think there's probably a tie there to the understanding of, of judgment uh, upon things that are going on in the earth. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the stars, Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had made bitter. Um, does everybody's Bible have that Wormwood capitalized? Mm-hmm. One is, one is not. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Wormwood's a plant. Um, it's, uh, it, it is something that the, the Bible does use, um, describes the bitterness. It's not something that will kill you on its own, like it's not poisonous. But if you drink too much of it, you can die from it. Um, it does show up um, in Proverbs, uh, Deuteronomy, and then in Amos 5. So back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at Amos. I started reading this section of Amos, and I decided that I love Amos, and I need to read more of Amos. But I didn't feel like you guys would tolerate a full Amos study right in the middle of this thing. (laughs) So we're going to have to get to that later. What's interesting is this part of Amos, um, this part of Amos is referenced toward um, God's people. And actually, we'll see that pretty consistently. The Old Testament reference that he's using often are in the context of God's judgment upon his own people um, in their rebellion. And those same then... um, the same connotations of judgment are now being switched where God's people are sealed and kept from it and it is um, the people that are not God's uh, that ultimately this same judgment comes upon. So like we'll see that in some of the Old Testament passages. But this is um, Amos chapter 5 and uh, I'm a big context guy so we're going to start on verse 1. <coughs> Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Basically, don't uh, come back. It's It's a call to repentance. Okay, come back to me. Come to me. Um, don't be seeking um, in, in other places. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turned deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the water of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the, the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, he will be with you. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So you you see kind of this call that he's making. And I'll be honest, like the more I read Revelation, the more I kind of appreciate some of the stuff in the Old Testament where I kind of skimmed it before. (laughs) Um, But like 
he's calling on the house of Israel back in Amos about um, your, your poison, right? The things that you're poisoning that, that I've, I've set you up to do and I've asked you to be. Um, and he's calling them to repent and come back to him. And it's in that same mode, I think, that we're getting kind of this wormwood thought of like, um, he's calling the nations to repentance through his judgments here. Like through his, his casting these, these things onto, into, onto the earth. Because um, you notice that people aren't dying yet. Okay? These are, he's, he's impacting the things that, that um, supply life. But people aren't dying. They have an opportunity to see these things, see the power of who God is, and just like in the Exodus plagues, the potential to repent. Whether they, now, truth, truth be told, we will be disappointed. Um, the, this continues to come up over and over in Revelation, uh, God's offering of repentance, and only once will they will people actually repent. Uh, most of the time, people will um, people will harden, and people will continue to believe what they've always believed, like Pharaoh, um, and that will be the constant thing. I was talking to. Um, to Dan once uh, and he, he used to be a, um, a chaplain in a nursing home and he said you know what's interesting is like there's a, you feel like there'd be a lot of opportunities to talk to people kind of at the end of their life about God and stuff and he goes you know what people die like they live like there just isn't a lot of people coming to the end of their days who are uh, more interested in hearing about God than they were 20 years ago um, they tend to just be kind of stuck where they are um, and we talked a little bit earlier but the, 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 it's not a biblical proverb but like the same same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay and like some things will bring people to repentance and some things will make them take them even further from where they were and so these judgments that are that we see in John's vision are he says will kind of be the same thing some people will find um, trouble or will find sorrow and they will bring people to their knees and they will be reminded of who God is just like him taking them out of Babylon or just like famines God, God threatened his own people multiple times with locusts and famine and said look I will get your attention one way or the other because I will love you and I want you back to me and if you are blind to me now I will do whatever it takes to get you to come back um, and I think we're seeing a lot of that here in these trumpet judgments is, is we see that God is constantly reaching out to even those that aren't him and he will use physical means and he will use sorrow and he will use um, all these things to try to bring people back to him you know what's interesting I don't know if you guys all you guys remember um, you know where you were kind of the aftermath of 9-11 but like the churches were packed they were packed after 9-11. Now, am I saying that I think God did it? No, I, that might be pressing the matter. But the truth is, is that um, it, is, it is pain often or suffering that makes people realize how small they are and possibly how big God is. Like, have you ever been, um, as much as we think we can control, as much as in a society we think we can dominate and um, how smart we are and how far we've come as a people, like, we still hide in the ground from a tornado. Right, the pow- the powers of the earth. We still, we, there's nothing we can do about a hurricane. We can't build a wall high enough. We can't. We don't have material strong enough to stand up against the powers of nature that God has created. And so, some of those things, I don't want to say put us in our places like it's a it's overly negative thing. But we need to be reminded of who God is, and it is sometimes those things that react in a call to repentance and people people are reminded um, that they're a little bit smaller than they think they are and God is a lot bigger than that um, and that a big God loves them and that he will do what it takes to try to call them to repentance the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that the third of their light might be darkened again we said that's kind of like the uh, the ninth plague ninth exodus plague and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead woe 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 to those who dwell on the earth 
at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So, however rough these these seem, things are about to get worse. All right. Chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from earth to heaven. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In the appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold and their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. This is a weird set of circumstances right here, boys. This is a weird set of events. Um, here, there's one thing. We'll, we'll read through Joel, um, probably the end of Joel 1 and into Joel 2, that I think will keep us from thinking, from latching onto the fact that this might be literal. Um, do I literally think that there are some demonic locusts coming onto the earth? No, I don't, I don't think that's what he's talking about. His, his language up to this point doesn't seem to indicate that. But the imagery that is used is pretty specific, and I think is to, we're to understand certain realities that come from it. So let's, let's start kind of parsing, parsing through it. So the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven on earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Here's the question. Well, two of them. Um, what's the bottomless pit? pit um, and who had the key? So the bottomless pit, go ahead. Is it Hades? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, generally the, um, the, the Bible will use this um, synonymously at times with Hades. Okay? Or, the, or the, basically the, the broad concept of a place where um, death is or demonic forces are. Yeah. So yeah, I think the right thing is to think of it from Hades. And it says he was the angel. This angel is coming down from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Who gave him the key? Any ideas? Man, I, I know, it, but it's like it's crazy how I just forgot. Like I didn't forget, but. <laughs> That's okay. So we've seen keys so far in Revelation. Who had who's had keys so far? Anybody remember that? That's right. I knew you agreed to it. I mean, you didn't say it out loud, but I know that's what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. So we said keys are symbols of symbols of authority and ownership. Okay, this is God. If the angels coming from heaven to earth, God is giving them the key. Who controls Who controls the abyss? Who controls the bottomless pit? Satan. Who, who just, who did I say just gave the key? Yeah, yeah. This isn't within God's control. This is what's going to be, frankly, this is, becomes a little bit tough to digest in chapter 9, is we're going to see all these demonic forces come at the hand of God. It is God that calls them. It is God that gives the key to open the abyss, uh, or the bottomless pit. It is God that allows them to do what they're doing. Yeah, Jesus is the king of hell. That's true. That's true. God is the king of everything. Um... Even those things are within his control. Uh, this, is, this will really test your, our understanding of, of whether God is, is in control and sovereign or not. And whether he can be trusted. Because the truth is, is if I trust that God is who he says he is, he loves the way he loves, he judges the way he justices, all his ways are good and true. Then when he says, I let these demon locusts figure things out, 
like understanding what that reality means, I have to say, well, <laughs> if God is just, then this must be just and right. And this, this revelation will certainly test our understanding because what we, what we tend to do is we say God is sovereign and good and right and just when he does things that we would otherwise do. Okay, when he says he loves people, we say, yeah, we love people. That sounds right. God is good. And when, when there are things that go on in the world and we say, well, that must not have been at God's hand or God w- certainly wouldn't have permitted that. But like, we have to give God credit for who he is, who he claims to be, who he, what he has control over. Um, he, he does get rowdy at times. Um, and he, he will judge and he will, um, he will do some of these things. And I think that is something that is difficult, maybe that, that sometimes we don't have, it's not right in front of us to have to digest. Um, but I think, I think chapter nine will force us to have to digest that. How do you fill a bottomless pit? You, well, you don't. I don't think you fill a bottomless pit. <laughs> That's the whole point. It's a, that, that, is, that is innumerable. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's right. So, so I, think, um, I think the star, who, um, who the angel is, um, he's not real clear here. Um, there's speculation that this could be Satan. This could be the time where Satan is, is basically falling. Um, although we get a lot of that language coming from, I think it's Ezekiel 14, but that's not really a description of Satan falling from earth. As a matter of fact, Revelation 12, I think, will question how we understand when Satan has fallen from earth or, or fall from heaven to earth. Um, the, the Ezekiel 14 reference tends to be, is referring to um, the king of Babylon. And basically it's, you tried to exalt yourself above God and I will tear you back down to where you belong. Um, that's more of that thought. So um, could this be just an angel that God sends from heaven? That's where I would lean. Um, I don't think there's enough here for me to say that it is not uh, Satan though. Um, I just don't know if there's something strong that I would say this definitely is. So um, keep that in mind. He opened the shaft to the bottomless pit and from the shaft uh, rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. What do we know? Um, locusts are an interesting thing. What do you guys know about locusts? Like What's that? That was from like the first time it happened with Pharaoh, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you had a plague. Of, so this, this continues with the theme of Exodus plagues. Yeah. So, so it was one of the plagues that came on. Do you guys remember um, the nature of, of these locusts or how do locusts act or what are the things about them in nature? Yeah. Yeah, they're crazy. Like they come at you guys. Do you guys see, um, anybody seen The Mummy? The, the movie The Mummy, like there's this big like cloud of locusts, locust-like creatures. That, I mean, they, and they come in a big, they darken the sun. You can't, uh, it, there's so many of them, they're so thick. And like they decimate the land, decimate it. And so the locusts, um, if we look in Old Testament, uh, the way they're used in the Old Testament, God will, um, God will threaten his people, his own people with locusts many times. I will send locusts, they will decimate your land, repent. Come back to me. Um, he describes invading armies that are coming into Israel that they move like locusts, that they have the impact of locusts, okay? So there's pretty consistent symbolic use in the Old Testament where um, locusts are act a certain way or come as agents of God's judgment upon his people or upon somebody else, okay? So that, that's one of the reasons with the entire, the, most of the Old Testament is not referring to literal locusts. I don't think we have a reason to think these are literal locusts here, but it does put into perspective that what is happening here. You have judgment coming from God and he's sending locusts and they have kind of like a demonic 
flare coming out of this shaft um, that God has allowed to come out. And they're interesting because, what does he say? Do not harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. That's what locusts normally are eating, right? So they're, they're not normal locusts who are otherwise kind of handling their normal bit of affairs. Um, and they are not to harm the people who do not have uh, the people who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, um, we talked about this a little bit last week. Seal of God, like literal something on your head, or meaning something else. Exactly right. Like it's not. We shouldn't be looking for a guy with a tattoo. Just like when we look at the mark of the beast, that's not a literal mark either. It's an indication of who you belong to. And the Bible describes that we're sealed are sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? You're protected by God. I belong to God. He, he owns me or takes responsibility for me. His seal is upon us. And we talked about the sealing of the 144,000. Um, those are um, symbolic terms that basically mean God's people are sealed. Like, who can stand? God's people can stand. Who will be spiritually protected? God's people will be spiritually protected. Which also makes me think that this is a spiritual um, description of the locusts and things rather than a physical thing because that seems to be how he's been talking about most of this up to this point. I wonder if people thought during the Dust Bowl that that was the end of the world because they blocked out a huge portion of the sun during these Dust Bowls. They had yeah. locusts. They had, then they drew rabbits and they had to kill rabbits by the thousands and thousands and thousands because they were drawn by these Oh, I would, I would imagine so. Yeah. I would imagine so. Yeah, a lot of the, and, and you see that, that you also have, you have parts of the world where those things are more common and um, where you're more likely to actually see things that way. Um, I know red moons still freak me out. Like, I know Revelation is a symbolic deal and everyone's like, red moon, creepy. <laughs> but, like, I know better, but there's still like things that go on in nature where it kind of wigs you out. <laughs> but and that's why I think some of these things that God describes, um, like even if I didn't have anything tied to those, those circumstances, like when it's dark and it's not supposed, like everyone goes out and stares at the sun during an eclipse. We're like, oh wow, there's no sun here. And so like, that's why I think God uh, and it has revealed these visions to John and use a lot of these kind of lofty nature type language because things, it's innate with us that we are in awe of things like that. I expect, I expect light and when there's darkness and not light when I expect it, it causes me to consider like basically what's going on around me um, swarms of locusts I, I think you're right and certain situations like that kind of call you to think uh, I don't know just a heightened sense of well, what surrounds you travel all the way to the east coast and the sun in New York Washington and that's when they decided to do something about the dust bowl because it actually traveled so far it, it started to bother was impacting them, was right? impacting them right 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 uh, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Let me ask you a question. Why do we think, why torment and, and five months? Why do, why do we think not kill? To keep you alive. So, I mean, sort of like a, a way of punishment, but like God really punished people. Like, if God really punished us, we would really, really know, but I think it's more like a lesson. So. I, think you're, I think you're right on track. I think you're on the right track. So, like, if, if part of what we've seen so far are calls to repentance, okay, if God desires for them to repent... Torment kind of makes sense, <laughs> right? It's not, and, and again, this is, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to digest because we're like, at God's bidding or request, we have people that are going through, through trials or, or the biblical word torment. But if the point here is God saying, I will do what I have to do to get your attention. I will call, to you, I will call you to repentance. It's hard to see that as, as a gift, but that's a gift. That's a gift. 
and that won't last forever. Uh, the, the, there will be full impacts of God's judgment. But like, I think that that makes sense to me as understanding torment. Five months. Um, there's a couple things that could be playing into that. I think what's most likely is um, that's generally your lifespan of when locusts are moving. Like that's their term of how long they're. It's a complete time, basically, of when uh, locusts are kind of going about their business. Um, it says, uh, and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. Um, there's a there's a reference back in Jeremiah eight um, that I'll read to you guys that I think has. Uh, makes sense kind of within that scenario. Let me see if I can find it. You know, I used to laugh at the guy, those guys that have Bibles that have um, like 70 of those strips and they're a bunch of different colors and stuff. And I'm like, what do you need all that stuff for? And then now I was writing some stuff down today and I thought, shoot, I wish I was one of them fellas. <laughs> all right, here we go. Jeremiah 8. Um, it says, at that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. That's extremely disgraceful. Extremely disgraceful to a culture like that. To be taken bones out of a tomb. We were just at, we were just at the effigy mounds. And it's, it was, it was um, the Indian burial where they would um, bury people and um, the mounds that they buried them under would be in shapes of animals and stuff. Okay, But like... It's um we we don't have that kind of secretity around our our dead as much. We still have some of that, but like it's you don't take some of these bones out of their spot and distribute them out into the middle of everywhere. Um, that's a shameful thing. But this is uh, this is God saying, "I will do this, and they shall be spread before the sun." And the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. That's pretty interesting. He said, this, these are your gods then? I will disgrace you, and I'll lay you in front of your gods, and we'll see what it does for you. And God is fierce at times when you, when you chase after other gods. And so, like, he, he, calling back to this, remember when I said our old, a lot of times when John is referring back to the Old Testament, it's not just we should look back at a verse and say, oh, he said similar things. We should look at the context in which those things were said. And so, um, in context of these judgments, if these are the people of the earth who are not God's people, then presumably they've done similar things. They've followed other gods. They've chased after other idols. And this is God's kind of reaction to those things. But he continues. Um, and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declare the Lord of hosts. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course. He's remember at the end of um, Judges. Um, that's the description of, of uh, Israel at the time of Judges. He does what is, what's right in his own mind. Uh, everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the storks in the heavens know her times, and the turtle doves swallow and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. So I think there's an element of um, some of this judgment is coming because of what they've chased after. We've gone after false gods, false idols. Um, and that's why I think he's probably calling us back to that Jeremiah verse there is to understand where some of this judgment is coming from and to notice that this is not an inconsistent thing with God. He's always felt this way. Frankly, he's always been this firm. Your, your bones will be like poop on the ground as, as what I care. You're going to chase after other gods and not me. He's always been a jealous God. Um, all right, I'm going to read this. Uh, actually, let's read, let's read Joel 2 first, and then we'll come back and continue reading Revelation 9. I told you this week would be a little bit, a little bit rough. If anybody have, I don't know if you've got headings in your Bible, but if you look at Joel chapter 1, does anybody have a, like a title 
at the top of Joel chapter 1? Locusts destroy the crops. <laughs> Invasions of locusts. Uh, it's, it's more and more, I used to not understand, like as I was trying to study for some of this stuff, um, people always said um, the Jewish logic was circular logic. They expect God to kind of act in similar ways, not, not a linear thing. And I was like, okay, I think I get that, but I didn't understand it until I started seeing connections like that. I'm like, God says locust, he means locust. And they keep coming around, they're always symbols of judgment, it keeps showing up over and over again. Okay. Um, Joel, it will start in uh, Joel chapter 1, verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament. Would you guys know what it means to, it's, it, that's actually what sackcloth is. It's a, it's a sign of despair, a sign of um, woe. Um, some often a calls calls to repentance again. Um, oh, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, the fire has devoured, the pastures of the wilderness, and flame is burned. Even the beasts of the field, excuse me, all the trees of the field. Flame has burned all the trees of the field. Amen. Seems similar, doesn't it? We just saw something like that. Now, was that, is this the end of the world in Joel? No. No, it's not. So again, we've got to keep these things in context. Um, they are very dire circumstances that they're using to describe realities of how God sees the world. Okay, so that's that. It should kind of bring us back to to recognize that just because we see language like this, like the world was still alive for John to say these things in Revelation. Joel was talking about what was it, like four or five hundred years prior. Okay, so symbol, symbolism still here makes more sense than thinking that these things are literal things that are happening. Um, and then here we go, chapter two. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Okay. Trumpet. Sorry. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumblings of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march on, on, on each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons and are not halted, they leap upon the city, they run up the walls, they climb, up on the, climb into the houses, and they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars which are all their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord <coughs> is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? What does that sound like? like who can stand? Who can stand? Right on. Sounds a lot like who can stand. Uh, return to the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. 
Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nation. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? So similar language. We see these, these locusts, charging horse type figure folks showing up in Joel, and we didn't read all of it in Joel chapter 1. Um, similar images coming back. And what was it? It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance from a gracious God, even though these people, um, they were not sealed. These people did not treat God's people well. They were the ones that propagated the martyrdoms that showed up with the guys under the altar. And even then, in God's response to the prayers of his people for vengeance, even then, God used it as a call to repentance to others to still come to him. It's a very, it's a very rough chapter to read, understanding God's sovereignty and how he, what methods he uses to get there. But it is a reminder of the depths of his love that even then, there are calls to repentance within it. Um, now, now let's read. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of the wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months, same amount of time as the torment, is in their tails. They have his king over them, the angel of the bottom. The king is the angel of the bottomless pit. Um, does anybody have a... Anybody looking at the Bible on their phone? You'll get there faster than I am. Can you check Proverbs thirty twenty seven? Locusts, they have no king, but they march in their own. They march in formation. Sorry, right. it's just kind of funny. Proverbs thirty twenty seven says, "Locusts have no king," and then here it says, "They have a, as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit." I just thought, sorry, that probably wasn't worth the diversion. But I just thought that was funny. <laughs> 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 um, they have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. Uh, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called uh, Apollyon. So a couple things to probably hit through here. Plus, first, the names, both of those really basically mean destroyer. Okay, The, the names in, in both Greek and, um, and in Hebrew basically mean destroyer. Um, they do show up in other places. Um, Abaddon has a reference that is similar to um, uh, Judas is referred to as a son of basically Abaddon. Uh, son of the destroyer. There's just there's some interesting kind of parallels with how that's used. Um, the descriptions of the folks. So this may come up. Um, this is one of those connections that I'll tell you about. Uh, I'm not 100% on, but I think it's just something to consider. Is um, the main the main enemy of Rome or the the um, the country that they could never conquer was Parthia. Okay, it, it was on the other side of the Euphrates River, and um, the big deal was, and I mentioned this actually in the sermon a couple weeks ago. They would they uh, they had long hair. And they, their faces were kind of uh, painted faces, and they would they really irritated Rome to battle because what they would do is they would ride in a horseback, fight for a little bit, and then almost immediately retreat, and then shoot arrows kind of behind their back as they went. Okay, um, kind of like stings from a tail. Something potentially to think about, okay? Um, and so they were the big threat to Rome. They always thought that, like, if there was going to be some sort of Roman in- invasion into Rome that they were actually afraid of, it was from Parthia. The, the U- river Euphrates was kind of their separation, was a natural boundary, boundary. Also, the country of Armenia. Armenia was, um, for all practical purposes, like, um, uh, like a Belgium. 
Okay? It's the, the place where everybody goes. Like all the big wars are going to go through Belgium. Belgium is kind of agnostic about everything, but they're going to get destroyed while two other big folks fight. Um, Armenia was that. Um, Rome and Parthia were all constantly fighting over Armenia to put a king that sympathized with them so that they knew they had a natural barrier against this potential conquering kingdom that was over here. In fact, there was a Roman concern. They thought when the Roman Emperor Nero died, they were worried. Uh, there was stories going around that he would resurrect like, like a Jesus-type resurrection and then... Um, lead a Parthian army back against Rome um, after his death. And so like, it was a legitimate concern from a Roman perspective. Now, the Christians of this time probably aren't all that concerned of that, but they would be well aware of Rome's concern of it. And so when we see things, we're going to see the... Um, the angels that are removed from the river Euphrates and later on we're going to see that the river Euphrates dries up and basically if you if, if your river is your natural barrier between two warring kingdoms and that river dries up you know <laughs> you kind of know how have open season type of thing um, so there might be an interaction with the, how these locusts look these demon, demonic locusts look as a kind of a heads up on um, a Parthian empire um, which would make sense to me here's, here's where I think the connection would, would start to make sense is that the looks kind of make sense to me um, with the way they fight and stuff but it also, these judgments were upon, calls the repentance of people that were not God's people. So whether the Christians would be concerned about this is kind of irrelevant. Would Rome or the, the ruling kingdom, the Babylon of the time, be concerned about this type of description? Yeah, they probably would. Um, so there could be some interaction with, um, with Rome there. Um, again, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like 100% on there, but it's, it's a possibility. Do you think that they, it's possible that that description was just used so they understood, or that that's literally happening. No, I don't think it's literally happening. I think it's a description. Because think about what it tells. Think back to our perspective of the seven churches of Asia Minor, right? So what are these, what are these trumpets doing for them? Um, why would John, why would this vision be important to them? What does it speak? Well, I think a, a few things. One, it carries on from the perspective that they're, they're sealed, right? Regardless of the, st- they will get caught up in some of these things, right? If, if, um, if you can think literally, if there were physical implications to part of the seas being gone and part of the sun being darkened, like that's going to impact everybody. But the direct judgments show up, um, you can see that God will basically deal with those who have caused their martyrdom. Um, will avenge their blood. So I think these are still reactions to the prayers of the folks under the altar. But they also need to be to see that this is God also calling them to repentance. So before they get so caught up in the fact that saying, God, I want you to call them to justice, to recognize the grace of, that, of repentance that has been extended to them, God, even in his judgment, will continue to extend to those that aren't them. And so I think that communicates that to them. It provides some assurance that these things are even under God's control. Even I have the key to the, to the shaft of the abyss, and God will use that to bring judgment. And so it's a reinforcement of God's sovereignty to say, even as we see the things that we see, God is still in control. He will do whatever it takes to, to do these things. And so I think there's, they're feeling that. Um, does this put into some sort of um, understanding... Um, of the description that this this is something that, that will become upon Rome, not as a physical thing, but like in concept of those that were otherwise oppressing them. That's why I think it speaks to them. I think they would recognize the um, the description. But again, I, here's the, I, I'm not them, so I don't know how much they care about it. Um, so that's where I'm not 100%, but I think there's enough there for it to be a potential tie. So we don't see things as God does. God sees things every minute, every time, all the time. So mm-hmm. It is plausible for someone of my intellectually boundaries that I have yeah. to know that God sees all things at all times, every day, every minute, and that he's it's not like John, who's only so many years old. It's not like me. Right. God sees all of history all the time, so he could use all these symbolisms and things that he has seen in his span of whatever time he doesn't have. Right. 
So that helps us to grasp that there, it doesn't matter if it happened before John, after John, during John, anytime. God sees these things and he's relaying to them in the language that we might be able to understand. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that's how I would see it, yes. Yeah. It would be way, the things that we can otherwise tie to that would make sense to them. But I think also it's broadly enough that, like, it doesn't have to be that and it still kind of communicates something that I can get whether I understood the characteristics of a Parthian Empire or not. It's just that's also a relevant thing for the, for the kingdom of, which, of Rome in which they are underneath, right? These make sense to them. That is their primary oppressor. Um, Rome will, will continue to show up here. There's, there's plenty of um, confluences between what's going on in Revelation and what's happened in the Roman Empire. So I think all that stuff makes sense. Um, I just, you know, I wouldn't ha- I'm not hanging a theological hat on it, but it's certainly interesting. All right. Um, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Um, this reads, the, the, Greek, uh, the way the Greek wording is here, it's like from the midst of the four horns. Like this isn't uh, an actual horn talking. Although, if you think back to some of the, what we read in Daniel, um, that is a horn. there is a horn talking. So, I mean, I'm not against it. <laughs> but um, the, the way the Greek seems to imply something more, amidst the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. All right, things have progressed. We had torment. Now we're on to kind of final destruction. Um, who to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. This, this was the reference. Anybody have 200? You guys that printed off don't. Anybody have 200 million? Do you? Yeah. Okay. So this phrase here is, um, uh, we, we said we're going to look at numbers and we're probably, most of them, are, in fact, almost all of them from my perspective will be symbolic. We're going to weigh them. What do they mean? Not what are they counting? So this phrase is um, two um, times myriads and myriads. Okay, which is the same phrase that we see earlier um, back in Daniel chapter 7 um, where there are, they're kind of surrounding the throne of God. You have myriads and myriads. It's not 10,000 times 10,000. And here John kind of escalates that. So I think 200 million probably isn't the right rendering. I think if you let it say what the underlying Greek says, it's myriads and myriads, which is intentionally taking you back to the throne of God as described in Daniel chapter 7, which is basically these innumerable groups of people that surround God's throne that do, do what God has to be done. Um, and I think that's more likely what the reference is here than like a literal count. Okay. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. So here's, there's a, we don't see this very often, but this is a reminder that, that this is something that he's seeing. It's not necessarily explicit reality. Like we've been kind of moving with that assumption in our symbolic nature of things. Um, but this, this kind of reminds us of the, when he's seeing this, then this, then this. This is simply the order in which he is taking in. It doesn't prescribe an order in which things in which they're actually happening, which goes to Rick's point. Like, um, it's very difficult. We only can, can handle certain things in a literal way, so that's how John describes it. But that is, this is simply how the vision um, that he's taking in, not necessarily a reality. Okay. Um, I saw in my vision and those who rode them, they were wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and my meads in them they wound. Um, so I think there's like... There's not a ton, that I think, to digest here, except for, like, it carries the similar connotations like the, like the locusts. They're bringing judgment upon the earth. There is actual death here. But look how, look how it follows. 
um, and this is in verse 20, the rest of mankind, now our focus is on those that remain, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So, just to make sure perhaps we, don't, we didn't see our previous Old Testament things as a reach, it's, it, it's exactly what he brings back here, right? These were calls to repentance. These were God trying to reach out to them to turn back to him to get their attention. Um, the things, now, the things that they've been doing, and this is what kind of hopes, puts this in a broader kind of, I don't know how else to think about this, uh, like a broader ethereal plane as opposed to a specific point in time. Do I know of a time in which people were... Um, bringing judgment upon themselves because of the works of their hands or the worshiping of demons or the worshipings of idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood or refusing to repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. No. I think those have been true. this has been true throughout all time. In fact, that's why a lot of them show up in kind of the Old Testament language of similar judgments. Um, so, again, one of those things that would help, would generally orient me to say, these are reflections of realities across all time of which are bringing judgment upon humanity, of which God can enter into and out of at any time, as opposed to things that are happening only at one point of the time at like an end of the world. Because the truth is, is like, these are, cur- these are currently true. There are people that are refusing to repent of their sexual immorality, of your theft, of their sorceries and murders, although how many of those were there? How many did he list? Four. It's completion, right? The, basically the complete rebelliousness against God, or you have worshiping demons of uh, gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, um, the aspects of the, of the idols. What do you, are you seven? Oh, no, so the total list is a seven. So, like, again, the culmination of people's rebellion or idolatry against God as opposed to something else. So that's, what, that's just a reason that I would generally land this as not a specific point in time, but all points in time. Amanda, did you have a question? Many, but none that the answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, okay, so that brings us through... Uh, and thank you guys for your patience through that. I know there was a lot of kind of bopping in and out of Old Testament stuff there. Um, I, I wanted it for perspective um, to see, that, again, some consistent throughout those things and maybe ways that we can understand. Uh, locusts is the perennial joke like this um, about, like these demon locusts are just scary looking things. But like as we see them as agents of God's judgment, they make way more sense as, as broad agents of judgments as opposed to like specific time and place demonic activity. So I don't, I don't believe we'll see any of this. These are just reflections of actual realities that God sees and the way that he sees them, not actually things that we'll see. Um, all right, chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, uh, wrapped in a cloud. So it's weird. John, John is, seems to be back on earth now. So like his orientation shifts um, between where he's coming from, like you see he's in heaven and then he looks down upon earth and now he's saying angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. It kind of gives the impression that now from what this next vision he's seeing, he's reoriented on earth and watching things come back down to happen. Um, uh, angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Do you guys re- Have we seen descriptions like that before? Anybody remember? Revelation. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So we have a rainbow over his head. This, the bow over his head of uh, it takes us back to the throne of God. What about what about face like the sun? Who is that describing? Face like the sun. That's Jesus, that's Revelation chapter one. Jesus is described as a face like face like the sun. Legs like pillars of fire. Who does that description belong to? Jesus. Yeah. There you go. Also, Jesus, uh, pillars of um, pillars of fire. He had uh, so that's this description. Now, is this Jesus? I don't think it's Jesus because, like, 
He doesn't ever describe Jesus as an angel, but I think we're supposed to get the impression this is a on authority of God type of character. Okay, he at least shares some of the attributes that are coming from him. Um, he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he sat his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from, say, from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Um, so uh, what do we think uh, symbolism on standing on earth, uh, one leg on earth, one foot on the sea? So that, that, that was, I think some of that connotation, if you remember, um, and maybe that's why we have this kind of a little bit of a Jesus description as part of this scroll, because that, that, that was the description of the, the, the scroll that brought the seven judgments, right? Is that no one was worthy to do it, but it was Jesus who could do it. The slain lamb could do it, right? So now we see, I wonder if there's, um, when we see he had a little scroll, I think this is probably a different scroll than that, but it probably does similar things, right? Like we learn, we have basically have a message from God, a revealing of a truth within those seals. I think the little scroll probably brings something similar to those types of things. And so he comes, he's got this scroll in his hand, and he sits his right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. What might be the, con- the, the connotation or like what is kind of the inference from that? The ruler of the whole, of everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of everything, right? Like there's nowhere else to stand. He's on sea, on land. Our, we're made up of sea and land. He's on sea and land. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's, got to, he's standing on both. It's, and there's, um, there's a lot of cool interactions with similar discussions in, um, in Daniel where you have a... Um, uh, you have a, a, a similar figure, this kind of Jesus-like figure, um, and he's hovering over the waters, kind of like a walking on water type of thing. In fact, we're going to go back and read Daniel 12, and we'll see some of that that interacts with, I think, some of what this is. Um, well, here's what's interesting, though. We have seven thunders. So we've had seven seals, seven trumpets. We're going to have seven bowls, and then we have these seven thunders. But he says, seal them up. You don't get to share what these seven thunders are. Now, this is one of the things, and like I get that I'm kind of harping on this, but it, it helps just reinforce our understanding of some stuff. If we were to look at, if we thought that Revelation was a roadmap, if it's supposed to be telling about specific events that lead us to the end of times, okay, we have no thunders. We know that they occur, but we have no description of them. And so if we even thought we could put together a map, which I would say is extremely dangerous, dangerous from a Jesus that says no one will know the day or the hour, you have no thunders, which means you have an incomplete map, which anybody who would then claim to know what the, when the end of the world is or try to tie it to events is coming from a spot of blindness because we don't know thunders. Does that make sense? Okay. Why, then why does he do thunders? I don't know. Maybe, again, maybe it's a symbolic thing, a four, because then he's got four sets of judgments. I, maybe. Or it has some connection back to Daniel. Let's look at Daniel chapter, chapter 12. At the time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, 
How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. That's a similar description, right? In Revelation, we only have a right hand. But in in Daniel, we got two. We got both right and left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Is that not the description we also got? We got a reminder of who God is, okay? Uh, And some of his attributes. That it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy peoples comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Uh, same here. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. Okay, continue our, our white and understanding who God's people are. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. Uh, lack of repentance. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Um, uh, Dave Herrick did a pretty good job, um, I thought, on kind of handling this end section of Daniel. So if you guys didn't go to the Daniel class, it's in the same... Um, uh, it's in the same Dropbox folder. If you can listen to that, he kind of goes through at least a way to understand um, that into Daniel. But like, I thought it was interesting, the interaction. We see a lot of similar languages, uh, language in Daniel 12 as we do kind of in, in Revelation uh, chapter 10. All right. Um, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went... So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy, or we said prophesy, we should understand is bring the word from God or bring what, what God is saying about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Um, let's look. And see, if, well, for, for, actually, does anybody, does anybody recognize that action of God handing a word out and a scroll being eaten? It's in Ezekiel. It is. Let's look at, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 2. You guys in the same spot now? You wish you had the little tags and stuff? <laughs> it also made me wish that, like, you know how people teach their kids to, you sing a song and you kind of memorize the order of the books in the Old and New Testament? I never did that, and I'm regretting it. <laughs> Because then I could then I could sing through you know Jeremiah easy and then I would know where it's at, but now I just have to broadly take a stab. All right, <clears throat> Ezekiel two, Ezekiel chapter two. Uh, this is God speaking, uh, and He says, and He said to me, "Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you." Remember when we were talking about son of man language? We said Jesus refers to Himself as son of man, um, and this seems to be this kingly figure in Daniel seven. But we said it also shows up in, in places like Ezekiel, and it's more of a God saying, I am God, you are a son of man, kind of putting you in your place a little bit so that you recognize the, who it is that you're actually talking to. So he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. I like that because it's got the same connotation as, because um, remember in Job, it's like, gird your loins, I will speak to you, I am God. I kind of like when God sets you on your feet and says, sit there, I, I, I'm about to wisdom on you. Um, Stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. Similar description of how 
of what happened to John. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on... Scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. I think this is a little bit of the context in which John is having to take these things in. He has much the same responsibility as Ezekiel does here. But you, son of man, hear what I say. I'm getting to the point, I promise. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So, we see some similarities there between what, what John is being presented with and what Ezekiel is being presented with. Now, ba- even based upon what we just read, what is Ezekiel's responsibility? Well, he has to eat it and he has to, he has to say it. Yeah. He's given the word and he's got to speak it. He's not going to want to. People are going to hate him. It's not going to be good. Yeah. The bitterness is maybe not for his stomach, but for his life. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The lives of the others. It's it's no surprise as we look through the um, as we look through, especially um, even today, you'll have uh, people who are like um, who are, will claim, "Hey, I'm a prophet of God," or "I'm a prophetess of God," or "I wish I was a," or "I want to be a prophet of God." Now, here's the thing that shows a very deep lack of understanding on how prophets of God work, because. Not a, they tend to be um, there's a lot of a sign acts is what you call them through, through prophets is like they become the sign Jeremiah is, <laughs> is treated terribly um, Elijah's job is to people that hate him and revile the message that, his, that he brings is to sacrifice himself for that message okay so like if we see people that are saying I am a prophet or a prophetess of God and they are living any type of life that doesn't look like they're in, under some sort of very difficult circumstance like if they are doing well financially or are loved by other people that is not likely to be a prophet of God that is simply not how prophets of God work. Okay, um, a lot of our mistake there is we're like, hey, we bring we bring words of God, um, but like almost every prophet that's ever brought words of God um, is hated by the people that he brings it to um, because they are the people that need the word of God the most. Um, and so, so yeah, yeah just each kind of kind of heads up with that. I, I, the Holy Spirit will do what He wants, right? I'm, I, I'm I'm a guy that says I don't put God in a box. I say He'll do what He wants. But you got to be very t- careful when taking on certain rules of what people have done in the Bible and then, then saying, well, but it doesn't work the same way it is. Prophet is a, that's a fierce way to live. Um, and it's generally not a gift <laughs> to you. God is basically saying, I will use you for my purposes. And from a human perspective, it will probably not be well with you. But you are blessed because I have chosen you to be my prophet. So just a, just a heads up on that. All right. So um, I, I agree. I think Rick's right here. So you, the, the word of God is, is sweet. It's a nourishing thing. It sustains you. It brings. <laughs> um, there's a psalm that, that gives the same description, sweet as honey. But it's also bitter. If you think out, um, let's look at, uh, I'll, I'll find this for you. Um, if you got, everybody know John 3.16, right? Okay. So that's, that's, a, that's a sweet, that's a sweet thing. It's a sweet thing. John 3.17, however, is bitter depending on who you are. And so, 
If we look at here, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up real quick just to have a reminder of what it is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Sweet. Sweet. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 18, sorry. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's, that's bitter. That's a, that's a bitter thing. We, we only hold up the sign for the, for the 16 part. That's, we take that to the football game. No, <laughs> the John 18 guy with 318 wasn't invited. He doesn't get to come or get the sweet wig. So, um, so yeah, I think it, it, is a, it is a bitter thing, not only because it depends on what side of the message you're on, but because of um, who John has to bring the, to bring the information to. Um, some people will be hardened by it, just like the examples that we've seen in the, in the trumpets, right? It will be a bitter thing, um, and I don't maybe you guys have had this experience, but it, it, is a, it is an awful, it's a very difficult thing to have words, God's words that bring you encouragement and hope and peace, and to see those same words pass into the ear of someone else, and, and all, it, all it brings up is, is anger, or uh, people react to it very harshly, um, and to see that they don't get peace out of the same thing you get peace in, that's, that's bitter. That's a bitter thing, but it becomes part of you. That's, I think, where kind of the eating of the scroll comes up. Like, it becomes part of who you are. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, like God said, like, uh, he here not to really judge, but he split up people. Like, when you were saying, like, people can't take his word the exact same way as you would, like, don't he really split families up and friends? And his, word, his word does that, yeah. People, people's reaction to the, um, the, the words, if you want to use the word prophecies, right, like to the words of God, um, uh, it will split families. Um, yeah, and it's it actually it's it's interesting. Like we seem so far removed from this, but like um, from where we're at in the country in, in the world. But like, I mean, honor killings are still a thing. There's still a thing where like you leave your house, you start to love Jesus, you could show back up into your uh, into your city forty years after you followed Christ, and they will still kill you. <laughs> you've shamed their family, you've shamed the, your the God that you left, and they will still kill you. And so like. Um, the impacts of following God will, like, they split houses. They are, it is a divisive, that's the sword. When Jesus says, I bring a sword, it's, it's his word that otherwise brings that division. Um, and so even, even if we think about, um, we give the, this was kind of in the end times class, we talked about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but like Rome keeps peace through a sword. And so it really depends on what side of that sword you fall on as to whether you would call that the violence of Rome or the peace of it. It keeps peace for the, you know, the, the Roman citizen, but like to the guy that Rome was trying to conquer, that sure doesn't feel like peace. And uh, it's kind of a weird analogy for this, but it's the same basic thought. It's God's word is sweet to me and protects to me and brings joy to me, but it is bitter. Um, not only because I see a humanity that doesn't react to it, but also in functionally for them, there is another side to it. Um, and there is a judgment of, of, for those who don't repent. Um, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And they, this, this also, again, continues to make sense. John, whereas Ezekiel had the responsibility of taking this, this word to his own people, to repent to God's people, John seems to have the responsibility to continue to spread this even among those that aren't God's because God's people have already been sealed. Um, and it's a four, people's nations, language, kings, probably basically the entirety of the earth, your job, uh, which mirrors our, um, our calls to, to uh, making disciples from Jesus is we're to the ends of the earth. That's us. And John continues to have that burden and he's also continued to describe that to, his, um, to the churches in Asia Minor who can also have that burden based upon what we know about our realities this also needs to continue to spread to the ends of the earth. Uh, how are we doing on time? Here's what we do. 
Um, I'm going to give you a, a broad overview of 11 and maybe into 12. Um, we're not going to have time to go deep into them, but like uh, I'll, I'll, um, let's, I'll give you an idea of where we're going with those. And then, we'll, then maybe we'll all decide dur- during the week whether we need to um, go back and hit them some more or whether, um, whether we can kind of keep going. So um, I'll read. Here's, here's uh, 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to put my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast (coughs) that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. (coughs) And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, four, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. That's also extremely shameful. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to them, to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. Who can stand? And a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. All right. So um, things. Um, I, there's a lot of symbolism here that I think we need to be careful of. Um, first of all, the measuring a rod like a staff. Um, he's going to measure the temple of God. Now, this is this what plays into when we think um, Revelation was dated. A lot of people will date Revelation written pre pre seventy because the temple, the actual temple, is destroyed in eighty seventy. Okay. Um, the thing is, though, I don't think this is a literal temple. Um, if we look back, uh, and we, we won't read it today, but this um, back in Ezekiel, um, we see him um, measuring a temple, and there's no temple existing at that time either. Um, but also, look what he's look what he's measuring. He's rising to measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside of the temple. When we were talking about the temple as a as a figure, the place where heaven and earth intersect, what did I say? Where, to, as from our perspective today, where where do heaven and earth intersect? Me, myself, and I. That's right. Right. It is in the Christians, the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is here. So like where, where it is that the who God is, okay, the essence of God or God himself interacts with the earth, it is within the believer. And this is why uh, Paul refers to the believers, the body of believers as the temple. You are the temple. Okay? And, and um, Jesus kind of laughed. I'm greater than the temple. And so when we think about this concept of this shows up in some of our end times thought as we have this thought that my, a temple might be rebuilt. If Jesus is greater than the temple, we simply cannot hold in tandem the thought that we might rebuild the temple. In a, as if, A, what Jesus has done was insufficient or that a temple would be necessary, okay? And we also don't have to bring a literal temple into here. Ezekiel, we have this image of Ezekiel measuring a non-literal temple. I think this is the same thing. Now, if we are the temple and Ezekiel or um, John is measuring it, what, is that, what does that give us a sense of? What, what, do you me- uh, what do you measure? What does that say of a person who measures something or calls something to be measured? What does it say about them? This one's a little bit difficult, I think. Say it again. So, um, if 
if he's giving, John's giving him a measuring rod like a staff, and he's told to rise and measure the temple of God, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Okay? If the, um, what does a measurement imply? Your relationship, if I say, hey, you should go measure this for me, what does it imply about my relationship to what I'm measuring? <laughs> like physically taller? You're a gigantor? <laughs> Are you uh, like how much faith or trust? If you're in the inner I, temple, you're associated with a certain amount of second people. If you're out in the outer courts, you are not measured because you're not the people he wants to measure. That's right. He wants to measure those of the souls of the saints. That's right. And I think and I think what you're getting is correct, Katie. I think it's it's a sense of ownership. Right? It's my it's my temple. These are my people. My people will be measured. Okay? And I will exclude the court of the Gentiles, which is weird because like in the legit temple, there was a court of the Gentiles. It was part of the temple. He's making a different distinction here. He's basically saying those that are mine are measured. Um, John, measure them. Know that, that I know who they are and they belong to me, which is very similar to what we saw, kind of reinforcing what we saw in, this, in being sealed. Okay? I know who you are. I know counts. It's a, it's a count, but it's not a literal count. It's just to imply like I know who belongs to me type of thing. And it, actually, do you guys remember the story about David in the Old Testament where he, he does a census and he counts and then there's, then there's like judgment upon him. God killed, I think it's like 10,000 people are killed. The reason, the reason that that happens, God's judgment comes upon him is because he counted something that wasn't his to count. It did not belong to him. It wasn't his people to count and say, I have resources. Those people belong to God. And so that was his offense, is trying to show ownership of something that didn't belong to him. And I think that's the same sense you get with the counting of the, those who are sealed here, or back in the, in the ceiling of the 144,000, and the measurement of the people of God. All right. Um, this is a terrible measurement. <laughs> What's that? This is a terrible measurement because it measures your motives. It measures your very heart. Yeah. It's not something you're doing. It's something you're being. Yes. And it's a terrible measurement, which would, I hope that I would be measured up, you know, that I know Christ. But the connotation with the, the measuring that people are doing nations, tongues, and kings, he's telling us, are you busy? Are you doing your job? And then he's going to, then he's going to measure. He's going to measure that. There is, and it's, it's one of those themes that's hard to get away from in Revelation where, um, we do spend, and I think rightfully so, a lot of thought on um, that we are not saved by our works, right? But like, Revelation bears out that like He does care what you do. It does matter how you act, even if it's not a, it's um it's not necessarily I see what you do and you are saved or not because of it, but I can tell that you are one of my people based upon what you do. I've saved you for good works. Are you doing those things? Like, and we saw that in the measurement of the. Um, uh, and I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but the, the ten virgins, we said five showed up with oil in their lamps, and five said, oh yeah, I'll be there, but didn't bring any oil. Well, like, you didn't really believe it was going to happen then. Like, that wasn't actually a faith thing. You didn't actually say, I, I believe the bridegroom's going to come. The guy with the oil was prepared. Um, and that's, that's because he was faithful. And when God said he was going to do something, he trusted he was going to do it and reacted accordingly as opposed to, yeah, no, I, I agree that he's coming, but I, put, I didn't react to that at all. That's kind of our measure of belief. Um, I'm going deeper than I said I was going to. Um, the, so he, I, th- I think all these are the same thing, by the way. So um, 42 months is how many years? Three and a half. Okay. Which is uh, 1,260 days is how many months? I'll give it to you. 42. Three and a half. Okay. Time. Time. Times. Half time. Three and a half. Okay. These are all the same ways of saying the same thing. Um, 
which is it's, it's relation to Esh, and maybe we will, we'll get to this maybe a little bit more next week, but like, <clears throat> I think our relation, if a seven is a measure of completeness, then I think we should be looking at three and a half symbolically as um, it is a span of time, but it is not, um, it is not a complete span of time. So basically, if we were to say things like, um, trample the holy city for 42 months, it's a promise of not forever. Okay? The city will not be completely trampled. Um, my two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. They will speak my words, but it will not be forever. Okay? There, there's, there's a limit there's a, to, to these types of things. Um, when it talks about the holy city, that, that is not Jerusalem. So generally we would want this to be Jerusalem. That's how we would think. That's how the Jews would think of holy city. But like if we look at the, the, the way Jerusalem is described in Revelation, it's always a great city and it's not a positive connotation. Okay? Because we, if we hear later on, um, and when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Okay? He was crucified in Jerusalem. Jerusalem does not have a positive connotation here. Um, a lot of times what happens here is um, we, we assume that the holy city must be Jerusalem. It's where we get this thought process that the, the uh, physical nation of Israel becomes very important to our end times understanding. There are, there are ways to get there that I, w- I wouldn't necessarily agree to, but we can't do it here. This, this isn't actually a good, this isn't a reasonable place for us to do that. I actually, um, I think the nation of Israel is a, uh, is a mission field just like everywhere else. No one, no one gets to, to, to heaven through anyone with Jesus. That's true for the Jews, always has been. It will be true for them always, okay? The, the nation state of Israel um, is, is just as much a mission field, okay? It's an important place, but um, <clears throat> it's not holy. God's people are. So he's measuring. He's measuring the church. He's measuring who his people are. He's sealing who his people are that has nothing to do with the geography in this instance. Okay? Um, the two olive trees points us back at two lampstands. This points us back to Zechariah. You know what? Yeah, there's too much here. We're going to have to do this next week. <laughs> we're going to have to do this next week. Um, I'll, po- I'll post some stuff that will help with this. this. This is dense. The two witnesses thing is dense. Um, just know that I'm not sure that it actually has to physically be two. I, don't, I think it's a sim- symbolic thing. You need two witnesses in the Old Testament to confirm a truth, right? If you're going to bring an accusation against someone, you need, you need two witnesses there. I think that's how Zechariah is using I think that's John is... Um, implying something here with that. So I wouldn't expect a physical showing up of two people that are prophesying for a certain amount of time. Because God's people are talking now, right? God's people are talking now. People are trampling on God's people now. So I think those are current realities. But we'll, we'll go through those next week um, about how to deal with that. Um, and then we see a bit of a shift into, into chapter 12. This, I think, should change or uh, our alter maybe our, if our traditional understanding is that um, the battle in which uh, Satan is thrown from heaven happens before the world is created. I don't, not sure that's accurate. Um, cha- chapter 12 will start to mess with this. And just so, because we got into a lot of dense stuff, I'll make you some fun promises so that you know they're coming. Um, we still have to battle out um, the sign of the beast, which is very interesting, or the mark of the beast. Um, we need to talk about Armageddon. Um, uh, later on, it's to show up twice. These are cool battles. Um, we're going to deal with an Antichrist, which to give some of this away, John wrote both Revelation and the first, second, third John. He has already talked about an Antichrist in Third John, okay, for, or Second John, excuse me. And so, um, I'm not sure that's a capital A. I'm not sure what needs to be a guy. Um, as much as there's good reasons to think this about a guy like Donald Trump, he ain't it, okay. So, <laughs> so uh, we'll get to all that stuff. Um, so there's all the all the big fun uh, revelations things that are supposed to scare the crap out of you, but I think are actually hopeful things for the people of God. They're still yet to come. We're going to get there, I, I promise you. So um, we'll, we'll hit that for next week. We'll start 11, 12 and start moving on and get into the, um, some real creepy stuff. All right, we're good. Thank you, everyone.